0: Hi, welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm Marilyn Barefoot. My very special guest today is Edmund Meditawaban. Edmund is a First Nations chief whose 2014 memoir, Up Ghost River A Chief's Journey Through the Turbulent Waters of Native History, was a shortlisted nominee for the Governor General's Award for English Language Nonfiction. Edmund is a writer, an educator, a poet, and an activist. For his advocacy on behalf of the residential school survivors, Edmund Meditawabin was awarded the Order of Canada. Throughout the interview, Edmund was joined by his nephew, Terry Meditawabin, his grandson, Brayden Meditawabin, and his grandson's partner, Dennis McDonald. And you'll hear from all of them directly towards the end of the episode. We wrap up with something incredibly beautiful, which is a drumming song performed by Edmund's son, Shannon. I have only one request. When you get to that section, would you please stand out of respect for the song and for everything taking place in this country? Thank you. I don't even know how to begin to introduce or describe our honored guest Dr. Edmund Metatawabin, good morning and welcome.
1: Good morning, thank you very much. I am from Fort Albany First Nation, and uh, scrub the the locale a little bit. If you are starting from Toronto and you go north on Highway first, and then eleven past North Bay to Timmins, it's still a three hundred a three three hundred mile trip, or five minute flight by a uh, 748. So it's a, it's a long way. We're a thousand miles north of uh, Toronto.
0: And I'm already so impressed with all of the tech that we've managed to get going from that distance. Edmund, so thank you for all the work you put into doing this with me. Edmund, I understand that you were born and raised in Fort Albany. Can we talk a little bit about about that? Edmund wrote a memoir in 2014 called Up, Ghost River, A Chief's Journey Through the Turbulent Waters of Native History. It's riveting, the only word I can really use, but I'm i am on my second read at this point. But let's talk about how it all began for you, Edmund, being born and raised in the Fort Albany area.
1: Well, it's, uh, the early memories will have to be, uh, on the land, the, the natural environment. My father's a trapper, always been a trapper. And uh, by himself, he was orphaned uh, when he lost his mother at the age of um, 19. And uh, his father took his family into the, the natural environment because he was trying to catch up on uh, bills and stuff from, uh, from going to war. So that um, set his plans aside for a little while. So he was trying to catch up with um, having uh, his possessions, uh, like a, a canoe, motor, traps, and whatever you would need, tent. So whatever he need to have a, a, a good enough life in the uh, in the nat- on the land, so he was trying to work hard, and but he found himself with uh, children, and uh, at the same time coming back from the war. In nineteen eighteen, he returned from the war, eighteen nineteen, and uh, his mother says he was a different person. His uh, grandmother Mary. Uh, also said the same thing, we did not get the same person that uh, went to war. There was a lot of high hopes about going and leaving when the recruiting officer came and said, um, pointing to the Hudson Bay Company's house, it was um, probably 60 feet by 40 feet or larger, two-story house. And pointing to the uh, Hudson Bay's house and manager's house and saying, we'll give you the same house upon your return, and you will get some uh, money, monthly payments or compensation. And there were other promises that they had to receive. So for a young man of um, just starting out, it sounded like a good, a good uh, piece of help. So a lot of his friends went in the same age group in the First World War, and they went. And, uh, so when he came back, yeah, unfortunately, whatever he went through there was uh, too much to keep himself straight or remember where he was. Everything was uh, thrown into a big loop, and uh, he was easily angry and impatient. But of course, he was still waiting for those promises. So combination with all of those things, he um, made him angry. And uh, so for, to ease his burden and his wives, uh, they decided, like, his grandparents decided that Abraham should stay with his uh, grandmother and also Eli, and when they became teenagers, they were on their own quite a bit. And uh, the area, like I said, is Fort Albany. What they call the Albany River now, If you look on the map, uh, but we call it the One. A lot of the original names that we use up here changed uh, with the arrival of the plants uh, and forest the ministry. Yes. and the um the missionaries, uh, the Hudson Bay and government agents, so they all made made changes. So that's a bit of the introduction of uh, where I came from.
0: Thank you. And to close the loop for me because I didn't know that part of the story, Dr. Edmund. I take it that the promises that were made of, you'll have a house just like this and we'll give you some compensation when you come back from fighting the war, did that ever happen?
1: Uh, no, no, That that's why he was angry uh, after that. He was, uh, until uh, he died, uh, those words and stories used to come and um, it's sort of trying to give a rationalization of why he went to war, what's coming to him, his his relationship with the crown, and that he was not just being ignored or thrown away after the war, that he was um, trying to get back the legacy that he was uh, promised him. So that stayed with him uh, for a long time. So... It was a loop that was never closed. We still have it. And it's still, for us, the reason we talk about it, it's, it's unclosed and it's an unfinished uh, business. But we understand now after going through our relationship with the, with the government, now we understand why that happens and where it comes from.
0: Thank you and I, and and I'll stop here to offer my condolences uh, Dr. Edmund because I understand that you just lost your father Abraham at 104 years of age very recently so my condolences and my respect I hope at least in the in the final days and hours of his life here on earth that he was able to find some peace because you explained to me that your brothers, your family stood watch and were with him at all times.
1: Yeah, we uh, was there for five days, and when he refused any more water, then we knew he was going on a, a Sundance. And for him having a long life like like that, uh, once in a lifetime, it's uh, a gift to the children, grandchildren, and all the. Um, generations after that to have uh, had a person like that that was gifted like that. And we understood uh, something uh, very important was going on when he said, uh, well, don't stand there. Your, your, your grandmother is standing there. So his wife was with him uh, during that uh, the beginning of the Sundance. And his father also came to to visit him. He he talked about his father, and you're starting to feel anxious to go. And looking at us and saying, no more, no more needles, no more food, no more, no more of the earthly food. I want to partake in the heavenly food or the spiritual food uh, for eternity, for eternity. And so it was a one-way trip for him. It was time to go. And he also said, I have completed all the things I came here to do. So he was was happy. He was closing the book. And when we heard him saying hello, greeting his uh, friends from long ago, long departed, and saying, oh, Solomon, here you are. And uh, so we know that he was experiencing something and like it was just for us to say it he wants to go home now let him go and we told the the nephews and nieces and grandchildren and great grandchildren to know that uh you have to let him go be be happy it's he's done enough the quality of life is not there and he has done enough he's completed his um this trip and it's time for him to go. So I think everybody understood that we understood that and it was it was a, a good farewell, a good, good. send-off.
0: Good, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that, Edmund. So if I um transition now to I first of all want to thank you because I have learned so much since my original introduction to you and we came to know each other a tiny bit or at least speak to each other a little bit because of the relationship with Linda Lundstrom who I interviewed previously and she told me about you and she said Dr. Edmund is incredible and and yes he will speak to you and so that's fantastic. I um I think that what I'd like to do here uh Dr. Edmund is redo something um from John A McDonald as we transition into I'd like to understand how it came to be that you went to St. Anne's residential school at you know at age 7 but I read this as the introduction to my understanding of what happened so Sir John A McDonald was our first prime minister obviously um And he said the following things. When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages. Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence. And the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. Could you talk to me a little bit about, I think it was your mom who decided, based on speaking to the local priest, that you should go to the residential school, St. Anne's, in your area at age seven. So maybe just talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Well, my mother is the diplomat in the in the relationship. And my father is a bit of a radical because he knows what is on the land, and he knows where he gets his food, where he gets his enjoyment and his uh, peace and relationship with the creator. If you spend any time on the, on the land uh, longer than a weekend, uh, you begin to see the, uh, the spiritual connection. And the closeness of the garden spirits. So it's almost as if the garden spirits almost become visible and but you do feel them. So he understood this, what he was dreaming about, that I could have that kind of uh, a life where the spiritual connection would remain with me, get developed, and maybe eventually like my grandfather or great grandfather uh, John. He was uh, he was a medicine man, and his brother Sandy was also uh, a medicine man, and they had powers that we won't go into that uh, at the moment. But my father was uh, dreaming all these things because he, that this is all he knew. This is his library. This is his uh, his learning and his. The the form of socialization he understood. Um, my mother, on the other hand, saw the danger in him following that because the Hudson Bay was the beginning of capitalism, very very clear plus and minus relationship, and uh, the. Uh, MNR now, but used to be Lance and Forest, uh, came to be because the police had an accident one time and uh, early on in the relationship um, on the Winnisk River. the uh, The job of the police at that time is to undermine the The personality, the integrity, the appearance of the trapper that is on the land. They had to convince the village people, people that stayed in town, to see the uh, trapper, the natural harvester, in a different light. So what the police used to do was cool upriver and wait for the, the trappers and hunting families to return home in the spring. After the river left the, uh, after the ice left the river. And uh, so they would wait. And then when they encountered a family, they stopped them, um, forced them on shore, and confiscated all the furs, the food, everything of value that the family had. And maybe just leave uh, the barrier, things uh, like. Maybe tea, sugar, whatever they they still had, for them to make it back into the community. So you see, by confiscating everything from the trapper, all the goods, the berries, the carvings, the tools, everything, um, the trapper would arrive in the community looking looking like a beggar, and the people, of course, the people, they're right, they have nothing. And uh, they're barely coming home. They're, they're hungry and starving, so we got to feed them, we got to look after them. So that kind of uh, relationship was beginning to be developed. And then the police uh, had an accident. They uh, Their canoe overturned one of the rapids, and four of them lost their lives. And it was now the Lantern Forest who took over that role of undermining the natural uh, uh, harvesting people. So they performed the same thing. They um, confiscated their goods and burned them, uh, complete destruction of uh, property. So they burned all those things, and uh, it continues to this day where the MNR is now very, very um, adamant that we stay off the land, what they call... Provincial land, or crown land, or whatever opinions they have about the land, the land is still land. It's just land, and if you call it crown land, it doesn't make a bit of difference to uh, a trapper or a hunter that wants that wants to go on it. And uh, so we treat the land this way: we go on the land where, whenever we can, whenever we're able to, uh, when we have to get our food. Uh, like most hunting, or going fishing, or the waterfowl. We have to um, supplement the price of store-bought food with something a little bit more healthy than the, uh, the condition of canned food after many years of being in the can. So that's not very healthy for anybody. So we've gone there. Now, my mother sees the danger of my dad refusing to let his child go because now the Hudson Bay Company will refuse to trade with him. And uh, the Lanson Forest will refuse to tag the furs that it brings in. And the, uh, the Catholic Church will ostracize and maybe not allow him to go inside the church. Because he's uh, being a bad Indian, so the combining or weighing the odds, uh, she convinced my dad we have to keep hunting, we have to provide uh, provide food for ourselves, we have to trade the fur to the Hudson Bay Company, and because of that, uh, we compromise by sending our child to school, our uh, firstborn. And so that was done very reluctantly. And I heard my mom crying for weeks before, um, days before, hours before I was uh, to go into the school. And my dad was uh, very quiet, very quiet, uh, had run out of options. And he was now in a corner, and so, in effect, um, doing something that was not within his understanding, uh, his intention. But a sacrifice had to be made uh, for his whole, his other family, the rest of his family to the survive and also him to be able to help the community. Because um, giving stuff to people in need was still a natural way of living. So he, he was still in, in that um, kind of thinking. So that's uh, where he decided, okay, like we will take Edmund to school and uh, We'll see what happens after one year. But they, they already knew what was, what was going on in there. My mother went to residential school, and my father went to residential school for three years.
0: I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, but I, I didn't realize that your mother and father had gone to residential schools. And, and they had experienced it. They understood what was going on in there.
1: Uh, They knew they were there for, um, my mother was there longer than my dad, but uh, my dad only went for three years. But because of what he was um, bringing back home and they had a little bit more um, influence or retention of their power or their freedom, um, determining self-determination, they still had those things. Uh, the company wouldn't change their way of, of behaving. So my father my grandfather, no, no in this case, my father's grandfather took him out of school after three years and said, No, you're not alone you're not going there anymore.
0: Okay. So this this gives me a completely new and different perspective on it, Dr. Edmonds. So thank you. So If I'm following the storyline of your book, your father took you at age seven to St. Anne's. His heart must have been breaking as he walked you from what I understand your house was fairly close to St. Anne's. So he walked you to the school. Your mom had wanted to send some photographs of the family with you, but your father said, you know, no, because they're going to take everything away from him. So your dad walked you to the school Can you tell us, tell me how that was for you, whatever you can remember from being seven years old?
1: It was uh, seven o'clock in the evening. After Mass, it usually held uh, at 6 p.m. in in the community. Everybody went, and it was the habit of their priest on their way back from the church to uh, drop in at the house and say, you're bringing your son now. And my mother would say, uh, just uh, just, uh, just hang on. And uh, like I said, there was a lot of crying at the house. And finally, um, my mother said, okay. And my dad dressed me up and uh, walked me, held, holding my hand. And I didn't know what was going on. I knew there was something new to be, to be going on. And uh, we had a 20-minute walk across the Dry Channel to the school. And as we were walking up the hill, um, I saw the big building, a three-story brick building, and lights in the window. It was dark dark all around. And uh, it was... um, I don't know. I, my friends were there, so I was looking forward to that. But I knew I was I was leaving home, and sort of knew that too. But I wasn't sure. And until we walked into the school, and up the stairs, concrete or um, metal metal staircase, I think it was metal, and uh, into the school, and talking to the to the nun who sent me to the washroom while he talk, uh, she talked to my dad. And then I was in, in the washroom, and uh, I heard the window, I mean, I heard the door slamming. And I looked out the window, and I saw my dad walking down the stairs and uh, walking away. So if you ever see somebody dejected or rejected or... Defeated and hopeless. Um, That was a picture, and uh, I still have that picture of him walking away like that. And uh, one of those things that helped me to go through, because it was a a one-day-at-a-time operation, but to make him hold his head up, that's what I wanted to see again. And uh, I see my dad walking away. And at the same time, I hear a shriek from the sister, the nun, the holy person, uh, yelling at me, telling me to get out of that room and washroom and uh, right away. So uh, I did as she said, opened the door, and she grabbed me. And that was my first slap on the, on the head. across the face. Hard enough to that I hit the wall uh, in the hallway. I hit the the opposite wall. And being only six, I wasn't even seven yet. I was still six years old. And you can get uh, a sense of that if you think of your own uh, six-year-old brother, sister, nephew, niece, and see the fragility of their, their their bodily system and their mental condition system and um, <clears throat> they're trusting. Um, you know, they, at that time, you want uh, joy and laughter and good relationship with the adults. And this is um, how I came into that building. But within two minutes, that was taken away, and now I knew that I had to be a different person, a different behavior more controlled and and as the days passed, uh, the weeks passed, and I learned to be a robot and not to be seen and not to be heard uh, by by the supervisor because that would be. Any kind, an opportunity for an attack, you know, slapping, hitting, and any kind of physical punishment that they could think of. So imagine you're uh, a seven-year-old by that time now, and you're told to sit on the the floor. No, not kneel on the floor. Kneel on the floor. Um, No, not kneel, squat. Squat on the floor and you're sitting on your feet. And so that's how you have to stay because I don't remember the infraction anymore. And so you stay like that. You feel your knees, your legs and everything uh, tingling and uh, just the the feeling going away. And uh, half an hour later, I was told, okay, now go sit. I couldn't even straighten my legs. So if you want to try it for two minutes, uh, you can get a sense of what it feels. And if you're strong enough to do it for uh, half an hour, then you will understand how I felt uh, when I got up finally. My friend was beside me, George was beside me, same, uh, same age, and he, I don't know what he committed, but he was there for one hour. Squatting on the concrete floor. And um, his legs wouldn't work after that. Just, you know, couldn't straighten his, uh, his leg, his knee he was easing up, and he hobbled to his seat. And he never recovered from that. All his life, even today, he will tell you that his knee is bad. And uh, so it comes, we, we know exactly where the injuries come from. Uh, what time, under what conditions they uh, they were made? So um, I know why George has a bad knee uh, today, and why he uh, he uses a cane now. He's the same age as me, but those kind of things. And uh, but there are more horrible ways of um, of inflicting pain. Because, you see, they had to take our personality away. The laughter, the um, easygoing manner, looking for laughter, looking for amusement, teasing people, and moving around, jumping. Uh, those, that kind of behavior had to be reduced to being a robot so that we could be programmed easier because this is what they were doing. They were going to erase the, the first personality, now drive that under, and put a new personality into the person. So, I it was obvious one time to me what can happen if you're driven into a certain point of um, suffering. Um, I was um, sick one morning, and I uh, we went to chapel by 6 a.m. We were at the chapel there for eternity, it seems to me, because I, I was sweating and I was sick. Finally made it to the dining room, and we were given the, uh, the, the same food over and over again every day, a, a bowl of porch. So I had my porridge sitting in front of me and I was trying to eat and uh, trying to get um, the porridge down, hold it down. And I was eating and finally it just gushed out and just fell in front of me and into my bowl. So I was sent up and I was upstairs for uh, three days, uh, sick with something. On the fourth day, I was feeling really, really good and looking forward to the events of the day and going to play and be with my friends. And uh, so again, the chapel in the morning and dining room. And so they were passing the the bowls down, the big dining table. Except me, I wasn't given anything. uh, So I was wondering, did they forget me? Until I heard the sister on concrete with her high heels clipping uh, towards my, uh, my seat. And she gave me the porridge of now four days ago. And she said, finish that. You didn't finish that. So I had to finish it. And there is a way that you can skip your taste buds and throw everything in the back and swallow And try to retain everything in your stomach. Because you think about the consequences. If you don't, there will be worse consequences. So you weigh that and say, I'm not going to get punished again. So I have to do this. So you do it. But I don't remember getting up from that table. I don't think I remember for the next six months or eight months after that because... uh, my friends used to say, you know, let's do the things we used to do, or let's do that again, and I would have no idea what they were talking about. So I don't know what happened to my brain at that time, but when you're going under severe, severe kind of stress, your body, your mind will protect you. And uh, so many of us, many people will understand that have gone through that kind of thing, That. Um, there's something that happens. Maybe it's the garden spirits that try and uh, help you survive. So I can feel them s- still there, the garden spirits, when I go on the land and when I do things. So I know, I believe that they're, they're with us, they're each and every one of us. We, we have a garden spirit that is very close to us. So that was a, a severe trauma case. And another one was the uh, being made to sit on an electric chair. And again, you're young, you're seven or eight, and um, barely able to understand, but all you know is that you have to sit on the chair, and if you don't, then something bad will happen to you. So you have to go through these things all all the time with the idea that I don't want to deal with consequences. And so you go through them. But you don't really know or understand what it does to your own system, to your own uh, mental health, well-being, uh, confidence. So slowly, as you go through the school, eight years later, after experiencing uh, many, many forms of uh, punishment and cruelty and uh always hitting the body and with the message that this body is not good. This body is, uh, is Indian, is savage. And the catechism that came from uh, the last edition was 1924. 1910 was the edition my, uh, my father went through. There are questions in the catechism with the Catholics that um, has a question, and then the student is supposed to give the right reply. And uh, who is God? And it has to be a a correct reply. So you repeat that. That's your your curriculum. And within the question of uh, uh, we have a good relationship with God or something like that, with the above questions, and then it says, who, who was the first to break that law? I mean, the law of uh, good relationships uh, with uh, God. And uh, the answer that you're supposed to give was he who does the shaking tent, uh, who smokes the pipe, uh, goes into a sweat lodge, uh, uses tree grass, uh, does evil feasting. And the final line in that um, answer was, these are the works of the devil. So imagine the the first edition is in the 1800s. So those are the elders, our elders that were trained that way. And then the next edition is 1910. And then the final edition is 1924. I haven't found any further changes to, to that book. But this catechism was to be used among the savages of uh, James Bay and written in French. And uh, so this was our, our curriculum, along with the, uh, the, uh, the arithmetic and uh, the English that uh, they were trying to pass on to us. Breakdown of the, of the, uh, the bodily system, the mental system that we came in with. To be, uh, to be changed into something else. And the books always say that um, to be changed into something readily acceptable to the public. So that's the Canadian public. So the Canadian public is a measurement of proper behavior, language, appearance, style. You know, just, just to be a Canadian person. So a savage is not a Canadian person that must be changed, that has to be changed into something more acceptable. Today we have that. We we can see those kind of things.
0: Thank you for sharing this so openly. Thank you. You were stripped of your name. You were given a number. Your long hair was shaved off. And you weren't allowed to speak your language. Cree. And so I, I don't even begin to understand how, you, you know, you don't even know what you're supposed to do in that situation when people are speaking English to you and you don't understand English. Um, I don't want this to be too painful for you, but how, how was it when they decided that you didn't have a name anymore and you were number four? and your hair was shaved off and you couldn't use your language.
1: Well, like I said, you have to look at consequences all the time. And today, those consequences are still there because we still have a supervisor of the total institution that we are in. So we can explore that later. But we do have a supervisor called uh, Aboriginal Affairs Minister. Used to be called uh, Indian Affairs Agent at one time. And they tried to make the word, the title, nice sounding, but the behavior of the Indian agent continues to this day and remains uh, the same to this day. And uh, when you lose those... um, when you lose your patrimony, it's um, it's a compromise. You learn to change, especially when you're just learning your formative years. You learn to adapt. And you learn to change because you know by changing, you minimize conflict. So that's all in your head. And uh, my name, Metatwaban, became Metatwaban. Well, that's not bad. And uh, my uh, name wasn't used in a way. uh, I was uh, called a number. And so, but number and name in our school were just about even. Uh, uh, My name was always, uh, I heard my name being called uh, Edmond, meaning it's a French form, and Edmond Metat. That was the name that I had in school for well, those eight years. So I responded to that name more than, uh, I only remembered by number when they passed around their clothes because that's was the one time I heard them my number. A shirt, number four, so that was my shirt, so I got up and got it. So that's the one time I heard my number. And the language, uh, not so much um, in our school, because um, our supervisors, uh, the missionaries, they all learned to speak English. I mean, they all learned to speak our language, the Greek language. So they all spoke that language at um, at the construction side, at the farm, at the store, at the maintenance building. So they they all knew the language, so we didn't lose that uh, that language part.
0: Okay, good. So, Edmund, I want to move. I want to move forward in terms of the messaging that you want uh, that I really want everybody to hear from you. Obviously, we want to hear everything from you. But what would you like our listeners to understand about your experience with this? with St. Anne's, with the residential school system, what would you like people, in general, anybody all around the world, to understand about your experience with the residential school?
1: Well, it's um, you got to remember uh, now you're asking about life and what you do today to, to uh, um, design a future. You're asking about the sacred fire. The sacred fire is a family. Uh, Within the sacred fire is the creator. That's the woman. The only door into the world. It has to be through the woman. So she is the creator. We don't have to look far to find the creator. And within the creator's um, presence, the inner circle, are the children that come through the door. And it's up to the man to make sure that those children, the offspring, the gifts from the other side, to understand about life, to be trained well, to be able to have skills, to understand the skills required for a good life, to speak well. And in the, within the sacred circle, we said, you got good heart, we always try to make sure that they know they understand soft words uh, hugging and hearing "I love you," and things like that so they can grow big and strong and confident and happy so they 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 have to hear laughter and they under they have to hear uh, stories and legends and history and things that will make them Conversation with other people, and say, oh yeah, I heard that story too. I I know about tschakavish, and uh, so it makes everything um, secure and confident within the social circles that they will be entering into. Um, the other person within the sacred fire is the man, and the man has a, the biggest responsibility. A very. Sensitive responsibility, but a responsibility nonetheless. The least important within the circle, but very necessary. And it is the man who protects that sacred circle to keep things that are harmful away from the circle, to keep good things coming into the circle, to protect that circle and ensure that circle uh, continues on. To uh, tomorrow. So that that's the responsibility of the sacred fire. Now, I have my grandson behind me uh, and his uh, partner sitting with him. I really have nothing to be ashamed about. Actually, quite quite proud. So. But I will caution the, uh, the Canadian public, the, those holding the, the, the measurement of a good life, uh, we were told all the time. Look at your own children that are 10 years old right now, male and female. Look at your child, your niece and nephew. What is their response? What are their questions? And their reaction when they hear about the children that were found, two hundred and fifteen children that were found. The uh, Kwasis uh, First Nation—they are going to be investigating. So we were—we're get, we're getting numbers. We're getting evidence, solid, solid evidence in the form of children, long from long ago, that were the sacrificial lamps. <laughs> Of the residential school. I had a child, blue, uh, blonde, blue-eyed, 10 years old, grade 8, afraid to shake my hand or hesitate to shake my hand because he said, I don't know how you can shake my hand after all the things we did to you. So you really have a responsibility as members of the sacred fire to protect your children because they're the ones that will be growing up. They're the ones with the with a cross on their shoulder to carry and understand well to understand why it's there and to be able to give it the correct answer. Because as they go on the international level, meeting other nations, that question will never Get away from them and all will always be there. So when your child asks a question at the dining room table, in the living room, watching TV, if they ask a question about the 215, what is your answer going to be? Denial? I didn't know about it. And you have to have a better answer than that. You have to understand what happened to, to the um, colonization of this country. Because you have to give an answer that's honest, truthful. Because if you don't tell the truth when they're 10 years old, they will discover the truth when they're 21 years old. And that's when they will look at you and say, my father, my mother, did you tell me the truth? So that's how I answer that question. We have gone through this suffering because we were prepared a long, long time ago that we would go through the suffering. A ceremony a long time ago that I will tell you about, and within the ceremony, an entity came in the ceremony and said, It's getting close. It's getting close to the time that your children will undergo a great hardship. Many will lose their lives. But this great hardship will descend upon them, and they have to go through that system. And in response, the men, the people, the grandmothers within the circle said, Is there any way... We can stop this. Is there anything, anything, we will do anything to stop this from happening to our children. What can we do to stop this? And the entity replied, no, you shouldn't do anything. You cannot do anything because this is their sundance. They have to go through that suffering. And when they have come out of that suffering they will be stronger and and in those times we will need these strong people to help us survive through the next phase of the hardship. So that's our understanding of why we had to go through that. And when I look behind me and when I look at Terry, I, I understand. I know that's what we went through. And I can only feel proud right now because I know them. I know their personalities. And I'm I'm happy because of that.
0: Thank you, Edmund. It took such a toll on so many people who went through it. And you, I mean, yes, when you were seven, but later in life, after you... After you've come through the system and you you you'd quashed it all down inside of you for so many so many so many years, it had to come out and you had to heal and and it's had such a dramatic effect in such a hugely destructive way on so many people who went through this. And one of the obvious things, which wasn't obvious to me at all, is that when you're taken away from your family at six. You don't have the chance to do the kind of bonding you want with your mom and dad and your sisters and brothers. And so then you you go out into the world as an adult having all this trauma inflicted upon you. But you also don't have any understanding of, well, how do I raise my own family? And how do I raise my own children? And I haven't had any, any of this behavior really demonstrated to me in a positive way.
1: Well, <clears throat> everything now becomes... Like a pinball machine, because you are now been turned into a robot, you don't understand the human factor, the spiritual factor, and the psychological factors. It's just a response kind of thing. You look, you hear, you um, you know, you, you smell. It's it's the atmosphere that is around you. And that is what you respond to. Uh, you learn to adapt and because you understand the program, um, because you just came from one. And, uh, but you still don't know who you are. And uh, so everything is a, it, it's a programmable thing. And how do you change a computer program? a personal program, a human program, and these are all words that are described under brainwashing and uh, character transformation, and words like that, and genocide, the genocide process, it's it's all part of the same thing, and... uh, you have to eliminate the things that are in the way that's uh, how we are beginning to understand the government is. It's not there to protect all members of the country, just certain members of the country that are recognizable, that are understood, that are acceptable, and you know the way Canadians should look like. So that's what the country is doing, and uh, we're still in the way. And if you remember what the uh, what the Premier of Ontario said in uh, two thousand nineteen, when we said protect the land, and uh, environment, and pollution, we mentioned all these things, and he said. If I have to bulldoze my way towards those uh, minerals, I will do it. So that's the kind of uh, goal and vision that the premier has. And uh, the public, that's what they want him to say. And the environmental factors um, are very, very far in the background. And we still try and... uh, Talk about the survival of the planet, environmental the health of the water, and the the life of the trees, but you see those things, and I say you as the um the the capitalist uh, system as a resource that can be turned into something brighter, useful, and those are words that are used so that that's that's where we find ourselves in right now.
0: Edmund, why, why am I 61 years old and I, until meeting you, really had no understanding? I was never taught this in school. Why, is, why has everything been swept under the carpet and continues to be so and hidden and, and, and not acknowledged? All those things. Why am I learning about this now when I was born and raised in this country?
1: I think you learned that a long time ago uh, when you left your home country. And this could be your grandmother or uh, great-great-grandparents. Why did they leave in the first place? Did they believe that when their government was trying to get rid of them because of the stresses of uh, food, jobs, and schooling, whatever was uh, stressing the country, the home country, and there was a, a push to depopulate uh, their country so you could have more resources for those people that are still there. So you believed in that program. And uh, so your parents or great parents or whoever left first, they left their mother country. And so they were rejected, they were thrown out, they were. Maybe under the pretense that you will get good rewards and uh, you will get this. Uh, if you go to war, you will get a new house. Those kind of things. So promises were made. And people believed in those promises. And they arrived uh, in the new world. And as uh, either fall to the harsh demands of the new world or try and make a go of it. So they had to make a go of it and um, do things that may be questionable, maybe damaging to others. Or but you had to make a go of it, and they call it hard work. Everybody did the hard work and persevered, and finally they uh, they occupied this country without asking themselves any questions, uh, closing their eyes, closing their ears, and uh, just focus straight ahead and bulldoze your way through. And uh, never mind how many people are run over with your bulldozer, but you bulldoze your way through. And that's the program you understood from back home, and that's the program you carried on in in the new world. So nothing ever, ever... Is your fault, or nothing is ever done uh, without a good reason. It's not an accident. It was designed. And you could even go further in that. Uh, as the uh, the old world was uh, undergoing a lot of distresses, religion came into play. And it was the Pope. The Pope had to be in the game because everybody uh, was placing a lot of emphasis on that church, uh, the Catholic Church and many other denominations. But you could also always, always within history see the church being chipped away by other ways of believing, thinking. You know, Anglicans, Presbyterian, all that chipped away uh, ran away from the main body to form their own. So it wasn't always that strong. But here the bishop says, uh, when Portugal is looking at South Africa, I mean, North Africa in the 1500s. So Portugal wanted the resources. Well, the church had to make a path for that. And they say that the church said through the Pope that since the indigenous people of North Africa were not Christian, they had no right to property. So you feel free to take anything you want from North Africa. And uh, because those are not people, they're, they're savage, they're primitive, uh, convenient words. And so, so being savage, they have no rights to ownership. So it's, they don't own land, that land is, is empty. That same thing in uh, 1500s, from the 1500s to the um, uh, 1492. Those words, those teachings were carried on in the 1600s, 1700s, 2121. 21. So it carries on. Yeah. The same kind of belief. Yeah. So it's been set for you to have a, a life without question.
0: You've been a huge advocate for the Indigenous people of Canada. Why have there not been more charges laid against the people that were committing these evil crimes? Why have we as North Americans, as Canadians, not gone for the higher ups? I mean, I read everything. And, and after everything was done and you, 900 documents, 700 people interviewed and, and five people were charged with respect to St. Anne's, we didn't go higher than that. We didn't go to the bishops. We didn't go higher up. And, and everything I've read, Edmund says they knew exactly what was going on. They had secret archives. They actually, in a lot of cases, were perpetrators. And yet everybody in the church, turned a blind eye, said that the records weren't available, erased what the OPP had interviewed all of the survivors about. It continues, continues, continues that, how do we stop this from happening? What, what do we do? Because there's still, you know, you and I talked about this. Now we've got the Maryvale Residential School graves from the Cowasis, but they just want it to go away like it never happened. They're trying so hard to erase this.
1: If uh, you will have to do some research on this one. Okay. The uh, the company that um, helped in the uh, discovery of the remains of Kamloops. Yes. Uh, whatever name of that company is. But what we hear is that that company has been purchased by the government. Along with all data. So... It's now under the control of the government. And they will either release those things later, later on in life, or never release them to the public so we never understand what led or what happened in within that crime scene. Nobody says crime scene.
0: No, they don't. You're right.
1: Any other nation committing that kind of atrocity would Immediately, the police would say crime scene, but none here. But the thing is, the police are working for the government of Canada. Yes. All the agents in between, the government workers, they're all paid by the government, including the lawyers. And every time the government announces a program of uh, millions of dollars, it is designed to um, benefit the lawyers, the professionals, to undergo the study because there are conditions that are asked for within that program that will help resolve that uh, those hidden graves uh, uh, file. They're designed to help the psychologists, the uh, missionaries, the, the police, and everybody else, but not the uh, the people themselves. They they will how they get anything. Maybe they will get counseling services. And when you get counseling services, somebody's telling you you're sick in the head. <laughs> yeah, you're not worth listening to. You're worth lower than anything in the world. So all you get is counseling, and. Uh, so, things like, let me read something about um, what they use. Certainly. When they say reconciliation.
0: I'd, I'd love to get into that. So, what is reconciliation? Please talk to me about that word.
1: The action or practice of making one account consistent with another Especially by allowing for transactions begun but not yet completed. But let's look at conciliation the hearing and attempted resolution of a dispute by an appointed conciliator. That's why I don't like the word reconciliation. Reconciliation just means to me, we've got to finish what we started and get rid of this Indian problem. So their job isn't done yet. So it's uh, words that you use within an ongoing program when you look at the terms of reference and the definitions. They always look at the long-term objective and that is the protection of the system, and uh, because, unfortunately, everybody now is implicated. Uh, right from the beginning, everybody has been implicated. The businesses, the uh, the government, the churches, and everybody was part of the same um, plan. But now, too many people are are asking questions it's like when you abuse sexually abuse a child and that has to be understood in the conditions of the abuser the adult abuser abuse sexually abusing a child. the child becomes evidence and the adult most of the time will say, I have to get rid of the evidence. Today, we find, we are now finding the evidence. And uh, so that, it's for you to examine that and question that and think about it. But in um, in blunt terms, somebody was trying to, hide the evidence a long time ago. And if... Yes. The uh, perpetrator was uh, hiding the evidence. I'm sure the supervisor knew about it. I'm sure the priest knew about it. I'm sure the bishop knew about it because there is a way of protecting abusers within the church. It's understood. And if they have files, which the police can access, which is a pretense, they know that, but in the back room are not accessible to police that is to protect the system that's in place. Right. So we, we understand these things. And uh, so if I say um, I don't trust the government, now you understand why I don't trust the government. They're they're just protecting a system that's been yes. corrupted a long time ago. And yes. it started in the 1500s by the bishop. Simple words of the bishop with the papal bull that said, they're savages, take anything you want from them. So that's where we started. And that's what the church is for you. To clear the way and bulldoze your way into the country and you know we'll get it in a way, one way or another. And that's what the Premier of Ontario says.
0: Edmund, how do we find our way forward? How how do you heal the indigenous people of Canada heal? How do how do I, I'm lost? It lost at this moment to understand the way forward here, given these atrocities?
1: I think we uh, we started mentioning the sacred fire. Yes. And within the sacred fire is truth. So you have to use that truth when your child begins to ask questions of you. And you have to say Give the right response to why are we not learning anything about First Nation people. You have to give the correct response. And you also have to ask the the question, do your own MP, your mayor, anybody in power, chief of police, and what is the program that you're being forced to do? And uh, I only saw one chief of police in Ontario almost give the right answer. I don't know if there was much follow up. When there was a blockade one time by First Nation people, and the public demanded access for that to be taken down, and they said, maintain the public, wanted the chief of police to maintain peace, open the highway. And uh, the chief of police' reply was, "I am trying to maintain peace by standing in the middle between First Nations and the public, and not siding with the other. So he was protecting both sides of yes. the uh, of the public there. So that was almost came to be, but that was I think totally uh, quickly, um, you know, eliminated." And now we're still looking on one side and facing the one side only. So it's uh it's a way of behaviour that's uh that's hard to um change now because it's been done for so much. But for you personally, I would just say be honest with your kids. Be, be truthful and uh find out truth and um so we're, we've been, we have books, we have events in our history, we know about colonization conditions on a global scale. We, we know these things and we know it's, it's implicating our country. So we are all implicated in what is going on. We're just maybe trying to defend it or describe it from a, a different direction. And I look at it from what I am fighting for is for my grandchildren to understand the condition of the world and not be surprised when they meet the the hardships uh, later on in life or today. So try to give them enough uh, foundation, uh, enough of uh, to see a person that does that doesn't want to take the uh the given uh things from the government or you know the menu from the government don't try and take that uh, question everything and understand their uh, their history understand their great grandparents and uh what what they had to go through and also help them understand that hardship is part of life and resolution is their goal and uh, until they the uh, they see something uh, a bit working but I understand that there will always be an attempt to find resolution it's a never ending process
0: thank you what is an action for our listeners that are out there i mean what can we do i, I it sounds so hollow for me to say these words what can we do as anybody listening to this podcast? Can we read? Can we? Can we? I asked this question of Linda Lundstrom, and she said to me, "Embark on your own journey of truth and reconciliation." Now, when she said that to me, I didn't even really understand what she meant, but it seems as if taking the word reconciliation out of it, I have embarked on my own journey of truth by meeting you and reading the books you asked me to read and, and getting a better understanding. But what can everybody out in the big world
1: do? I'm glad you're waking up. That's the first thing. Thank you. After a long sleep, after a long yeah. nightmare, I think um, everybody's waking up and they're asking, "What was that dream all about? Why did I dream that? Why, why did that happen?" And I look around now, and there are certain sectors that are unequal, and people sitting on the street and asking for help, and uh, and there are uh, high towers You're reaching to the sky, made of glass, and. Uh, Everybody's trying to worship these bright, bright little stones that we find in the ground. Why is that happening? And they're not placing uh, any value on the humanity. So maybe a bit of uh, the belief system of the First Nation people. I think we're supported by science if we say a big change happened 12,000 years ago science as 12,800 years ago. And uh, which uh, forced people to start over again. And we find, uh, we found ourselves after 6,000 years living on an island called Nawashi. And other nations looked at that island and pointed at it and said, don't visit that island. That's an uh, island of giants. Uh, powerful and you know uh, big people you know there are probably many words that they used uh in those days, but let just leave it at that, that the island were giants those are our ancestors as the water receded, that island became the highlands of today, and as the water left the area, the people said, well, it's time to go. It's time to go find water. So they went north and encountered the waters of Hudson Bay. They called it Winnipeg at that time. And then they went uh, east and saw the waters of James Bay. And now this was uh, a land, flat prairie uh, prairie-like grass, flat they stayed there for the next 4,000 years and now they're asking themselves, this was the development they say of a ceremony and uh, as they uh, uh, followed up the uh, philosophy of Turtle Island They will say, in all things we do, it is for those that are not yet born. So your actions always have to be with the thought that, how will this affect my great-grandchild? If you love your grandchild, you have to think like that. And uh, we say, Uchaban, my great-grandchild. My Uchaban... Is the person that just recently arrived in the world and I will make a path for them to follow that's what the Japan means I am making a path for that child and uh, people that are within my circle will also follow that child but it becomes a turtle island family so they all follow the same belief that it's all Everything we do is for those that are not yet born. Another one is the economic survival principle that they had. My good future depends on the health of my neighbor. Now you're looking within your own community. And uh, so there is a system in place when you see a street person a person suffering, a person handicapped, a person not able to do what a healthy person can do, it is your responsibility, dictated by your uh, wish to have a good future, to help this person. If you think about war, maybe this will be understandable. In war, it is better to wound an enemy soldier, soldier rather than kill an enemy. If you kill an enemy, nobody else is involved, just the one person. But if you wound the enemy, at least 10 people will be occupied looking after that person uh, immediately, and afterwards, more will be involved. So if you want a good future, you help other people surrounding you to have a good life. So we have less, less of people that will be carried. And you help them with what what you have. Another one is for self-care. And this is called kwachi. Each person has one other person in the community whom they will look after. So we all have a kwachi. Uh, I may have a kwachi in the community. That's the one person that I will make sure that I will visit and check upon and find out if they have enough resources, um, their state of their shelter, uh, food, and or just a friend that will visit them once in a while. So that's my kwachi. And I will also have one, that will look after me and make sure that I'm doing well. So as I give something on this side and it carries around to the community, one kwachi to another kwachi, it eventually comes to me. Yes. I receive something in return. So it becomes a circle. And uh, we are all looking after the healthy condition of the whole community. And then the region understands that. And the bigger region understands that. So we're all doing the same thing. And that's where you hear the word sharing. So it's uh, the the same thing. So if you understand these principles, then you will consider, reconsider, think about sending that bulldozer and destroying the rivers and the environment. Because my good future depends on the health of the um, mother Earth, yes, the environment. so if you think about these things, consider them, uh, sleep on them, share them, and uh, discuss them, and maybe we can share we can help you know this planet survive.:
0: Absolutely. Edmund, I've taken a lot of your time, and I've only asked for <laughs> a couple hours, and we could I feel like we could go on forever. If we haven't covered it, is there something that you would like to say out there in the big world of our listeners that we haven't covered off yet today? Is there, is there a message you'd like to, to leave that somehow through our travels of this discussion we have not covered yet?
1: Montreal Canadiens will win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably the biggest um, advice that I can give to anybody listening to this, every opportunity that you have, make somebody laugh. Because it, it sort of shakes up the system. And if you're caught up in a certain way of thinking... Laughter will shake everything, and then you have to start over again, putting all the pieces together again. You'll find that, you know. All in all, it, it, it's better to uh, to enjoy life and have a laugh and help somebody laugh and pass that around. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Edmund. is Is there is there anything your grandson or his partner would like to say at this point? Because they um i've been watching them in the background through the whole thing so braden is there anything you would like to to say and if you don't like it when it comes out then we can always record it either both of you i um let's take your view of all of this because you are the future that your grandfather is talking about braden so anything you want to say here you go
2: Uh well it's more towards him rather than towards the public but i just wanted to thank him for coming from where he came from and turning into who he is so I could have life that I do have now. This is, um, I could see the other side of uh, the people that can't recover from what's happened to them. Like, I feel for them very much, but I'm just very thankful that my grandfather turned what happened to, into him to something beautiful. And it's just, it's surreal sometimes seeing how um, his life has impacted the many of Canadians and stuff, Just as you were mentioning, but there's so many people I'd see him as an advocate, but he's always just been my grandfather. <laughs> um, so it's 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 really hard—not hard. It's really amazing to see the impact he's had. Well, not only me, but the rest of Canada.
0: Um, he's a very brave man. He is. Now that I understand a little bit more, I can't imagine how he's recovered so bravely and gone on to fight this this fight to make life. The way it is for you and your partner now. I agree. <laughs> Excellent. Did you want to say anything? Yeah, come on up. Dennis, what would you like to say, my dear?
3: I just wanted to um, mention that my mom is actually a residential school survivor, too.
0: I didn't know that.
3: And uh, she had like a very hard life out- outside of the school afterwards. Hmm. But she is um she's made such progress too in her life after and uh she's kind of like the heart of our family right now, and she does so much for the community and her friends and she's always there and sometimes I feel like when we talk about residential school or people who were affected I often get like a sense that people think it was like so long ago like hundreds of years ago and you know like why does it still matter and I never really thought of it until maybe I understood my mom's story more but I would often tell Braden like me and him are like existence like we're proof that it, it happened and and that There's like a ripple effect that it caused. And now I feel like I want to break that cycle that it was like going on for so long. And uh, we often talk about when we're going to have kids and what we're going to do differently just to make sure that they grow up healthy and happy. And it is such an emotional topic Absolutely. And uh, even though it's something that sounds like it happened so long ago, there's still so much of it around. It's just hard to see for somebody who's not educated or just hasn't learned about it, you know. And I sometimes, too, put it in the back of my mind because it is really hard to talk about sometimes sometimes. But I understand that I need to say these things out loud because it's really important to kind of let it come to, like, a peaceful end now where we can, like, grow from it and become happier and so we can, like, learn um, the way of life that we used to because I I feel like it does bring such... um, a calm to your mental health. And uh, I don't know, it's just such a beautiful culture that I feel like for somebody struggling with anxiety or depression, it brings such peace in your life again. So I would really love to like share it with friends who aren't Aboriginal or native, like just to kind of share that kind of peace into their life too. And kind of just shift it to that again.
0: They were very brilliant, very emotional, very moving, very truthful words. And and thank you specifically for bringing up the fact that it wasn't that long ago, in terms of when the last residential school was actually closed. And and I hope I'm not misquoting it because I have so many notes up here, but it was 1996.
3: Yeah, that's like, uh, like I was born 1997.
0: <laughs> so there you go, right?
3: But I see like promise and a hopeful future. Like we're in school now and we, uh, we're like, we're getting there. And I feel like we're still in that baby steps of like growing into young adults. But I just feel like we have a lot of support and just, you know, there's like, there's so much out there to look forward
0: to now thank you yeah we want to be there with you Dana. so thank you yeah thank you okay so hi terry
2: i just wanted i was telling ed that i uh i wanted to play a song
0: oh i'd love that please yes
2: it's ed's son uh, shannon uh he has a hand drum song that he plays and it's in our family song and uh, I just wanted to say myself is my mother was, well, it was, is a residential school survivor. My aunt as well. And uh, I just want to continue supporting Ed. And I, I I, think this is one of the biggest things that I find that people struggle with is the word love. And our grandmother, our kochum, she was our matriarch. Uh, she passed away uh, 2012. And that was her number one thing that I remember all the time is the love, unconditional love, right from birth, right from everything you went through in your life, but she was always there for you. And, uh, I think that's, that's something that, that I'm learning too, through my upbringing and just going through, like what Ed said, you're going to go through hardships and it's how you go through those hardships that made me understand more about myself and i i took a time out with my mother too cuz there's when these stories come out it's a trigger for her mm. and sometimes it's heavy it's heavy on my heart cuz like what uh, rebecca is saying there's only so much you can do on the screen
0: <laughs> yeah
2: and it's very disconnected and that's uh that's uh very hard for me yes but I just want to be there for my Uncle Ed because uh, we lost our our emotional my grandfather, but he left such a huge legacy that we want to continue that legacy to make our all of our kids, our grandkids, our future kids mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that uh, we want to make them happy, and uh, we just want to continue continue being uh, proud of who we are.
0: Thank you, Terry.
2: When Ed was uh, speaking, I actually lit some uh, sage. And it's that, that incense for this story that he was telling us, his life story. And I just wanted to honor that because we're listening very closely to him. I just also want to, for me, I just also want to acknowledge they were doing a CBC Live update as Ed was talking.
0: I heard that was supposed to happen today, Terry. So what? What? What happened as as a result of that?
2: As of today, Kamloops have two hundred fifteen uh, uh, sites found, and one hundred four in uh, Manitoba. Oh dear. Thirty eight in uh, Saskatchewan. <clears throat> 761 in uh, Saskatchewan, 35 more today, and 180 in the uh, I don't know where this is, Carlisle, PA. I don't know what PA is. as far as that Philadelphia. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's the update today. I just want to acknowledge that because, like you said, Ed impacted. Uh, well, he's, he's just quite a ambassador. <laughs> So All the work he's been doing it's way before 1996. I just can't imagine where we would be, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, they're hard, it's a hard conversation, but it's uh, so I don't know if I heard that through high school or whatever university that sometimes the truth hurts, but it's, it's how, you, how you move forward. So I know we're doing this virtual, but we see the sage here who's being lit, yes. This was picked in our in our area by our uncles. So yeah, so this is uh a lot of things going on in Canada right now <laughs> as we're talking here. <laughs> and uh yes. just thank you so much for doing this and uh and I'm gonna like I said continue my help with Ed and just being by his side and doing everything I can. So I'm just gonna play uh his son song here just to end it. I don't want to end it. I don't want to end it, but.
0: <laughs> I don't want to end it either.
2: Uh, what we're going to do is we're actually going to be, we're going to stand up.
0: Okay, done.
2: It's important to uh, acknowledge the song and just in your heart, thank Ed, but we're also reminded of those families, uh, what we're hearing on the news and just having a lot of humbleness and love and care of What's what's going to happen forward. And I'll just play this song he lives in the EI with his wife and kids. And, uh, so we just, we love him very much and just want to play this song. Thank you so much.
0: So I'd like to take a moment here to thank Edmund Metawabin and his family from the bottom of my heart for speaking to us and for sharing your stories. In order for this nation to heal, in order for this country to change, we must first understand what happened. It isn't pretty, it's horrific, but we need to understand it. Thank you again, Edmund, for speaking so openly and honestly with me and to your family. This is a message that must be heard.